Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Fago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Later in the program, Byron Callen of Capital Alpha Partners with a look at the week ahead. But first, joining us is Sam Bendet, part of the Crack Russia team at the Center for Naval Analyses. He's one of the world's leading experts on the Russian military, especially its unmanned capabilities, and is also affiliated with the Center for a New American Security. Sam, thanks very much for joining us. Always a pleasure having you on the program. Great to be back, Margo. And before we get started, our global coverage is sponsored by Leonardo DRS. Fortress Information Security sponsors our weekly cyber report. Northrop Grumman supports our cyber coverage overall. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy, ultra intelligence, and communications. Sponsors our command and control coverage. And we are a proud Farnborough International Airshow media partner. And our coverage of Britain's leading airshow was sponsored by Farnborough International and Leonardo DRS. Uh, Sam, uh, Russia is continuing its war on uh, Ukraine as uh, the Army 2022 uh, show convenes uh, in Moscow and elsewhere uh, in Russia. Obviously, one of you know the Russian version of AUSA on uh, steroids, uh, you know, showing capability that's uh, across uh, the spectrum at a very important time now, uh, six months roughly into this uh, war. Uh, Kiev is gearing up for an offensive, uh, striking the bridges around Kherson uh, to make it hard for Russians to both resupply, but also to uh, escape. Um, Russia is flagging uh, a bit. Uh, Ukrainian forces struck uh, the airbase uh, and other targets in Crimea, uh, although the Russians are using uh, Europe's largest nuclear power plant in Zaporizhia uh, as a firebase. Uh, causing uh, international tensions. Um, as somebody who's been watching this and has been talking about uh, the Russian buildup uh, going all the way back to roughly this time last year, um, give us your sense on uh, and, and what the team sends there on, on where this war is right now and what's next. There aren't that many significant breakthroughs along the entire front uh, since we last talked. Uh, there are no massive attacks or counterattacks uh, taking place. There are these slow kind of grinding attack and counterattack tactics, um, which are undertaken both by the Russian and Ukrainian forces. Russians are still moving very slowly through the rest of the Donbass region. Uh, they are fighting for every village, for every uh, urban center. But uh, the most significant development has been the ability of the Ukrainian forces to launch long-range strikes against Russian positions and target Russian military assets uh, hundreds of kilometers away. And I'm talking about the strikes on the bridges across the Kherson, and of course the attack on the Saki uh, Air Force Base inside Crimea, which destroyed and damaged a number of Russian aircraft um, and has destroyed uh, a number of munitions as well. Lots of questions about what actually happened at, uh, at, at the Saki. Um, everybody acknowledges that uh, Russia did lose military equipment. It's not clear exactly what happened. There are different ideas, whether it was Ukrainian special forces, whether it was uh, Ukrainian UAVs or loading munitions that carried out strikes, whether it was Ukrainian uh, long-range uh, rocket strikes, whether it was Russian negligence, uh, because a lot of these aircraft are actually parked uh, in the open without the cover and with ammunition stored nearby. This is probably the tactic that's also uh, quite familiar to the Ukrainians as well. They too right. suffered a number of incidents before this war began with their military warehouses blowing up because they were storing their munitions basically out in the open. And so because there were multiple explosions in very quick succession 
at the airbase uh, several days ago. Uh, people are saying that it could be maybe a combination of an attack that actually ignited other sort of munitions and other storage, which was right there next to the aircraft. And of course the aircraft blew up. The biggest issue of course, is that the attack was carried out deep inside Russia controlled territory. Crimea is supposed to be kind of a no-go area for any type of an attack of this kind by the Ukrainians because it's been under control by Russia since 2014. And so this is very much a military strike as well as a psychological attack because now it has been demonstrated to the Russian military that despite their extensive preparation, their logistics, um, their somewhat better performance now since the start of the war, they are not safe from the very precise and very dangerous Ukrainian strikes. Um, and uh, uh, exactly right. I mean, there's a lot of messaging uh, in this, right? I mean, the video of, of uh, you know, Russian beachgoers, uh, you know, trying to get away from their cabanas, uh, I'm, I'm sure, please, some on the Ukrainian side. Uh, and Kiev has said that, you know, has suggested that these also could be partisans uh, who are involved in the attack. But let, let me just, aside from the psychological impact, a lot has been made about, you know, this was the darkest day for the Russian Air Force since World War II. How militarily significant was this strike? Because the Russian Air Force still ranks as one of the largest air forces in the world. And we're talking about eight airplanes damaged and destroyed, right? I mean, so put this into perspective militarily, whether it moves any capability needle on the Russian side. In terms of sheer numbers, it doesn't have a lot of significance. Uh, as you just acknowledged, Russian Air Force is very large. It's got hundreds of aircraft. Uh, it does delay somewhat the Russian military performance out of Crimea against the Ukrainian forces in the south. Russians can always move more aircraft to replace the ones that were damaged. But again, the uh, strike carried military as well as a psychological significance because, again, this was carried very deep inside Russia-controlled territory. And so, again, it will probably not have a, a direct impact on the conduct of hostilities right now, but it is demonstrating to the Russian military that despite all their preparation and despite all of their bravado, they are still capable of losing aircraft to Ukrainian strikes to the Ukrainian military that the Russians are supposed to have destroyed by this time. Um, let me take you uh, to Army uh, 2022, obviously uh, one of the most important uh, shows um, on the Russian trade show uh, calendar and indeed coming at a very important time. Uh, what are some of the big themes in Army 2022, uh, Sam, and how are they being shaped by operations, Russian operations in, in Ukraine? The Army Military Forum and Expo is Russia's biggest event of its kind. It doesn't just take place outside of Moscow, where most of the activity is concentrated right now, but it also takes place across the country. There are also Army military games with Russian allies, which take place in Russia and around the world. Um, and these military games involve military Olympic-style competitions across different military services. There are tank biathlons, there are competitions amongst UAV operators, snipers, medical crews, intelligence forces, you name it. And so um, already these competitions are taking place in China, in Iran, in Vietnam, in Kazakhstan, and even Venezuela. So these military games are running concurrently with this huge military expo, which takes place at the, at the Patriot Park outside of Moscow. This event used to attract tons of people and lots of military delegations. This is a kind of a do or die time for this type of event right now in the midst of a war. Russia must demonstrate to the United States, to NATO, to Ukraine, and to the international community that it cannot be isolated. 
And the best way to demonstrate that is to have multiple military delegations arrive, take part in the events, shop for weapons, and then sign contracts. And so even today, um, Russian um, defense enterprises are announcing that they're going to be signing massive military contracts. And so signing these type of arms expo uh, export contracts is the surest way to demonstrate that Russia, in fact, is not isolated as a country. As far as the main themes, obviously the war in Ukraine is very much um, the overarching theme right now for lots of discussions about Russian military development, development of Russian tactics, techniques, and concepts for today's and future fighting. Uh, the, uh, the concepts of uh, import substitution, the state and the health of the Russian high-tech and the microelectronics industry, the impact of sanctions on the Russian defense and dual-use sector are very much front and center in many of the discussions. And of course, uh, judging from what Russian military is discussing about the war in Ukraine, uh, the greater emphasis this year probably will be all on the artillery, on multiple launch, uh, multiple launch rocket systems, on the UAV and the counter UAV technologies, on electronic warfare technologies that can combat unmanned aerial systems, the influx in the introduction of commercial technologies like the quadrocopters in modern combat, something that's definitely on display in Ukraine, as well as the, um, the ever-present importance of information and cyber operations. Um, what are some of the deals uh, that uh, Russian officials have tipped, right? I mean, even before announcements are made, we have a tendency of uh, having an expectation of what's to come. What are some of the deals uh, that we're uh, seeing. And then I, I've got also a follow-up question on, on delegations, but talk to us first about what are the potential deals uh, we're going to be seeing. Well, in fact, today, uh, one of the Russian executives for Rosaboron Export, which is one of the biggest military exporters in the country, said that there are specific technologies which the foreign customers are looking for, and that's military vehicles. Um, it's um, It's artillery systems, it's UAVs and electronic warfare systems. So as I just mentioned, the systems that are having the greatest impact right now in the war in Ukraine is something that foreign customers are looking for. So uh, overall, I think before the, uh, um, before the expo began, uh, Russian government was discussing something like half, um, half a trillion rubles worth of contracts that are going to be signed with Russia's domestic enterprises to deliver technologies to the Russian military and with the foreign customers. Uh, sort of a, a caveat to what this executive was saying, whom I just quoted, he was talking about UAVs. Uh, Russia isn't necessarily a big exporter of UAV technologies, right? Um, before the war, Russia was hoping to take a 10% chunk of the global military UAV market. And maybe if the war didn't happen and the Russian government was, was uh, investing in, in the domestic production, maybe Russia would be able to start sort of competing directly with global leaders like United States, China, Israel, Turkey, and Iran. But uh, Russia's uh, UAVs are essentially having um, sort of um, a limited effect right now in terms of their only specific types of UAVs that Russia is really fielding in large numbers. And that's the Orlan 10 uh, ISR UAV the Eleron 3 ISR UAV and several others. And these are the ones that Russia takes with it to military expos and to the military competitions. And maybe this time there would be more interest in, uh, in Russia's Orlan 10 UAV. But again, that's not exactly clear. We haven't necessarily heard any specifics about it. And considering the fact that 
For example, Orlan 10 itself depends on a lot of imported commercial type of components to fly. Sort of this statement that um, there's interest in UAVs is, you know, probably deserves greater scrutiny, but it's interesting that the Russians are talking about it. Clearly, absolutely everyone who's watching the conflict in Ukraine is observing that commercial and military UAVs are essential in combat. And so what kind of unmanned aerial vehicles can the Russian defense industry present? Can it manufacture uh, specifically needed UAVs uh, on a large scale? These are probably the questions that will be discussed. I do want to add another point to um, what will be discussed at the Army uh, Forum, and that's the impact of artificial intelligence on military operations. There's going to be a separate event dedicated to military AI, and there will be multiple discussions probably classified behind closed doors, close to the public, on the impact of artificial intelligence in modern conflict, and on the impact of AI on Russian defense industrial sector today and going forward. Uh, it, it, let me just, um, one uh, follow-up, uh, and thanks very much for uh, summing up. You you jumped ahead to my uh, next UAV uh, question, but have the, you know, it's one thing uh, to say that there's going to be a half a trillion uh, rubles uh, in activity, right? If the Russian military is the one doing the ordering, and that's what we're seeing so far. Are we seeing, what are the foreign customers and foreign delegations uh, that are uh, in Russia for the show? Because as you said, right, I mean, the Russians want to show this sort of united face. Uh, we're still in demand despite international sanctions. Have they announced any international deals so far, what is the expectation of the international deals? And what are some of the delegations uh, that are attending uh, the event? We are on day one right now, so we haven't uh, seen any uh, specific details. These will emerge in the next two or three days or so. Uh, Russia is the biggest exporter to a number of countries which rely on its technologies, right? China, India, uh, Vietnam, Algeria, are some of the biggest customers. And these countries are buying Russian tanks, they're buying improved and modernized armored vehicles, they're buying S-300 and S-400 air defense systems. And this time around, again, there will probably be greater interest in how electronic warfare systems are capable of countering adversary tactics and technologies like UAVs. So we're probably going to see some contracts related to these technologies. But again, um, there are other systems which are on display across the Army 2022 um, Expo outside of Moscow. Uh, Russia today announced that, actually yesterday they announced that there were 72 military delegations present to take part in events and discussions and possibly shop for weapons. Obviously not every military delegation present has the mandate to, to buy Russian weapons. But uh, they are going to take part in multiple discussions. And of course, um, there are delegations from countries like Iran, like Belarus, uh, and many others. Um, so uh, we're basically witnessing Russia saying that it's business as usual, uh, despite the war, despite the sanctions, uh, despite everything that's happening um, outside of Ukraine and all the pressure on Russia, it is still capable of manufacturing weapons and systems, capable of trading them capable of exporting them and uh, capable of hosting a major global event on the par with some of the biggest military expos that usually takes place around the world. Uh, let me just ask uh, one last uh, question uh, before we go, which is um, sanctions are beginning to bite uh, across the Russian economy. Uh, oil prices are decreasing. Um, 
is do you expect there to be a, a technological, reputational, or other impact uh, on Russia in this? Or are the nations that are buying from Russia perfectly comfortable buying from Russia uh, and it's not really going to have any impact at all? What's your sense? There will be impact on some technologies and some uh, defense industrial enterprises. Some exports are going to slow. Some systems may not be manufactured as quickly as possible. But the main theme for this forum and for Russian defense industrial sector in general since the start of the war and probably since before the war, and we have discussed it earlier, is not just import substitution, but manufacturing of practically all key components domestically. And this is something that a lot of these defense enterprises are advertising right now that, uh, for example, one of them is saying that just less than 5% of technology that they depend on comes uh, from imports. And uh, so a lot of these sort of um, defense industrial enterprises are going to uh, you know, announce, they're going to advertise the fact that they're capable of doing everything by themselves. The defense industrial sector is not the same as Russia's civilian high tech. Russia's civilian high tech sector was really dependent on imports. There was a lot of uh, dependence on the global supply chains. And so when sanctions took place, they impacted Russian high tech sector and its IT sector disproportionately. The defense industrial enterprises, those that manufacture heavy metal things, right, like tanks and armored vehicles, um, usually are really dependent mostly on the domestic manufacturing. Um, and so even if there are some components which may not be available, there are usually domestic uh, equivalents, which maybe may not be quite as accurate or quite as light or quite as, as high tech, but they are available. And so most of these exports aren't going to be impacted because they are such an important part of uh, Russian foreign and defense policy. Russia cannot afford its military exports impacted to the extent that, uh, for example, its uh, civilian high-tech sector was impacted by the sanctions over the last six months. So once again, we are going to see some systems maybe not manufactured on the larger scale, and there will be slower production for other vehicles and systems. But if there's a foreign order, Russia will go through hell and high water to make sure that the order is fulfilled. And Sam, really quickly, uh, before we go, uh, what's your Twitter handle? Because nobody has been covering Army 2022 uh, more closely than you have. At Sam Bendet. Uh, terrific. And everybody should tune in uh, to it uh, and catch up uh, on the last four or five days uh, of coverage that, that Sam's been giving. And uh, it's, it's almost minute by minute. Sam, thanks so very much. Always a pleasure having you on the program. Look forward to having you back on next week uh, for an after action on the show. Always a pleasure having you on the program. Thanks so very much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Thanks so much, Vargo. And joining us as he does most Mondays to talk about the week ahead and whatever else is on his mind is Byron Callen of the independent Washington research firm Capital Alpha Partners. Byron, hope you had a great weekend and thanks so very much for joining us. I did. I'm back in the saddle after some time in Nova Scotia and Maine. Byron, it's been a year since America's chaotic uh, withdrawal from Afghanistan. Everybody in Washington is trying to grapple with the fact that the Taliban uh, somehow didn't <laughs> were, were somewhat economical with the truth about what they were going to do with women and the future of the country. I mean, what are what are some thoughts? Uh, right. I mean, this runs the gamut from uh, that was a massive American failure that supercharged uh, Russia to misbehave and China to misbehave and others to misbehave uh, and others who've said, well, and actually freed up bandwidth for the administration to focus on different challenges. You know, a, a year on, what are some some thoughts you have about where we are, and where we're going? 
you know, I think one of the initial takeaways is Afghanistan did not pivot and become a net exporter of terrorism. You know, I think there were concerns at the time of the fall that Taliban would harbor uh, more groups willing to export terrorism either, you know, into their near abroad into Central Asia or further afield. And arguably that hasn't happened. Um, the, the CIA drone strike on a former or really a current leader of Al Qaeda, you know, suggests they're harboring some of these people. But, you know, they really, the, the idea that, wow, you know, Taliban just scored a major victory in Afghanistan, here we go again, hasn't transpired. Um, and I think, you know, to the degree that they're still really highly dependent on assistance, what little assistance they get is, is kind of intriguing, uh, maybe may as something of a break. Uh, that they've managed to maintain power. Um, I'm not an Afghan expert by any stretch of imagination, but um, you know, I suppose their 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 hold on power could still be tenuous if things deteriorate significantly. You know, wider economic trauma, starvation, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, that's one part. I, I'm skeptical that. Uh, you know, kind of the symbolic withdrawal, um, you know, the, the seeming abandonment of an ally uh, at the time, Afghanistan, the, the government there, you know, led directly to more aggression by Russia and China. Um, you know, those were in the works and there was, there was an interval between, you know, there wasn't an immediate pivot um, in September, October, to either Russia or China becoming much more aggressive, there was a there was a buildup. I think, obviously, Russia is really severely miscalculated. If that was the message that they did in fact take, and there was a lot of warning beforehand, um, the U.S. efforts to provide intelligence assessments, um, you know, a, a pivot that I think was unique, and then, frankly. If there were concerns that somehow the U.S. had been wounded politically and was not seen as a reliable partner, uh, you know, maybe the opposite has happened as a result of the war that Russia escalated in with Ukraine. And, you know, that, that was a war that started in 2014, not uh, on February 24th, 2022. The fact that nothing has happened is a testament to how hard uh, law enforcement and intelligence services work on a daily basis. We had uh, the uh, president announced last week the Zawahiri uh, strike, uh, killing um, al-Qaeda's number one and the guy who was a central planner of the 9-11 attacks. Um, the fact that nothing has happened yet doesn't mean that something won't. I mean, is there sort of a strategic vector change that has to happen with Afghanistan, or is this one of those things where... You know, we spent trillions of dollars. We fought a war for 20 years. It's over with, but we've developed other mechanisms. And if the country goes down the drain, further down the drain, then so be it. Um, yeah, I mean, we obviously, I don't know the backstory behind how that strike was executed. It's clearly there was a lot of planning that went into it. You know, there was this whole debate about over the horizon strike capability. And, you know, you just never say never in these kind of situations. For all I know, there could be a major terror attack this week or next. And we, we, you know, then the debate will be rekindled that, aha, you know, you could track a fairly high profile uh, former, uh, you could track a, a high profile individual, but the people we don't know about are the ones you, you really need to maybe be more concerned about. Uh, as we learned, you know, in some of these major terror events in the past, that 
kind of that hiding in plain sight and an, an action that, so, so I don't have a definitive answer to it other than, you know, if I looked at what I wrote about and what I was thinking about a year ago uh, when this event happened, you know, one of my primary concerns was, oh, you know, Afghanistan is, is again going to become kind of a, a hothouse for this sort of stuff. And, and arguably that hasn't happened. Uh, and I should point out, you were there on 9-11, as so many people were uh, on, on that um, tragic day. Um, let me move on. Army uh, 2022 at the top of the show, Sam Bendet uh, of uh, the Center for Naval Analyses and CNAS joined us and uh, talked a little bit about that. And you had some thoughts uh, in your note as well. What are you looking uh, forward to? Obviously, you know, Sam saying the Russians are trying to put a big face on this. A positive face on it, and that there will be many international delegations, half a trillion uh, rubles in orders to come. We'll see whether what the international community orders, but there are countries that are comfortable uh, with uh, Russian supply. And indeed, you know, Russia doing um, a substitution um, given international sanctions. But what are what are the things that you're looking for from this week, uh, especially as the war sort of enters and, you know, the, the war grinds on? I mean, right. We're well, I, th- I think that's six months into this. Bago is just, you know, these narratives that, you know, Putin's about, Russia's about to collapse, you know, that, that Putin is, uh, you know, his days are numbered. I think what we continue to see is, um, you know, there, there's some resilience. You're never really quite sure how deep that resilience is, but, uh, you know, Royal United Services Institute last week released a really interesting report on the content of microelectronics uh, from the United States, Asia, and Europe in Russian weapons systems. So, to, to you know, on one level, um, are these export controls really working? Uh, are they are they leaky? If they are as leaky as maybe what Army twenty twenty two might suggest, um, <clears throat> sure. So you buy a car in Russia, it's not going to have an airbag and a sat nav system, but um, what what microelectronics they can get in the country uh, are probably being prioritized for what what they're able to produce to replenish what they've lost in uh, in Ukraine. So I think it's a really interesting question about um, you know just how how isolated Russia really is. You know, doesn't suggest you're going to need a much higher level of enforcement of these export controls and a lot more attention to ways that Russia is actually skirting these. Um, and that may be one of the other not so subtle messages out of Army 2022, because they continue to, you know, I, I think probably as Sam has commented, and he's certainly written a lot about, you know, their interest in AI, robotic systems, you know, those are all heavily dependent on software, the microelectronics to run the software. So, um, just where are they getting this stuff and, and, and how, how, how airtight really are all these export controls and sanctions that have been placed on, on Russia's ability to access and, and deploy this technology? And I think arguably uh, Army 2022 and, and the Rusia report suggests that uh, it may not be as airtight as people are hoping for. And uh, obviously, um, it's it's the doldrums, uh, but it's still uh, busy, uh, busy in terms of uh, thoughtful events that are happening in Washington and elsewhere. Well, what should the audience be paying attention to this week? 
there are a couple of events, uh, you know, kind of on the anniversary of <clears throat> and the fall of Afghanistan. I think Hudson is doing one and, and CSIS this week, Atlanta Council next week. <clears throat> Surface Navy Association is doing uh, one of their, I guess, peer side events uh, really to talk about Surface Navy out in San Diego later this week. Um, and then, you know, the, the bigger and broader picture, I know, you know, Michael talked about it on your Friday show, you know, the budget news is really kind of uh, going quiet with with uh, Congress on recess, but <clears throat> there's still going to be a lot going on geopolitically, you know, are, are we going to get a deal with Iran or not that there were rumors today that that can happen, you know, is is China, um, what's the real state of China's economy and they continue to run um, stepped up levels of air patrols uh, against Taiwan, you know, where, where are we with that whole geopolitical debate? So I think the backdrop, the geopolitical backdrop is still pretty intriguing from a defense standpoint. Uh, and, and indeed, right, uh, uh, Senator uh, Ed Markey uh, of uh, Massachusetts uh, led uh, another uh, congressional delegation to Taiwan, uh, fueling more hysteria by the Chinese Communist Party uh, and, and Beijing overall, and the Taiwan Policy Act. Uh, is uh, you know going to continue to move forward, and that's going to be really interesting to see um, what what that means, right? I mean, Chip Gregson uh, on the program last week, uh, retired lieutenant, uh, Marine Corps lieutenant general, and former Asia Pacific uh, assistant secretary of the Pentagon, um, you know, did note that he thinks that Beijing has basically made the decision to take Taiwan by force anyway uh, at this point, uh, and so this is just. You know, these are all triggers, but it's it's muscle uh, flexing. Do you, do you agree with that take? By the way, that that Beijing has crossed uh, a Rubicon here, and that it's going more from sort of merely posturing to maybe doing something by force. I don't know. I mean, I, uh, part of my reading, you know, National Defense University just released a uh, you know five hundred plus page document on on that issue. Um, Rand had a report out last week, and I think Michael O'Hanlon also at Brookings also had some uh, musings on, you know, the China-Taiwan scenario. I don't, I don't have high conviction on that, Fago. I mean, it's still a daunting challenge for, Ta for China, and um, I I'm just, you know, maybe as, as the Russia-Ukraine, they, they can always miscalculate uh you know militaries and, and right. uh, political leadership can always miscalculate are, are they are they at the point where this is a walkover and they can conduct an operation with a high degree of confidence that they're going to succeed i think i think you're you're miles away from that kind of assessment uh and again right uh, autocracies uh have a tendency of miscalculating more than democracies although democracies can also do it as as we saw with the united states in uh, Iraq. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll loop back. I mean, I think it's a very interesting as much as th this has been on my mind in the wake of, uh, you know, the, this one year anniversary of Afghanistan, you know, it's just a thought to put in people's head, you know, is Taiwan more important to China than uh, China's security in Central Asia? And, you know, arguably, Historically, China has been a land power, not a sea power. And I just wonder, you know, this is another vector to play with. Again, it kind of falls into how strong or weak Russia will be. But 
if there are security issues in Central Asia, is that more important to China than Taiwan? And I just put that out as kind of an August thought for the beach. Indeed. Very briefly, um, there are concerns about domestic extremism uh, in the wake of the uh, FBI's uh, raid on Donald Trump's estate in Florida. Um, what's your sense on how that plays out and the issues that that leads to? Um, I don't know. I mean, I flagged it as a risk, you know, the kind of one-off attacks, for example, we saw last week where a guy fires a nail gun in an FBI building in Cincinnati, brandishes an AR-15 and then is shot dead. You know, that kind of stuff is really not going to move the needle on threats of domestic terrorism. But I do worry that we're, we're you know, there's a much higher probability of a coordinated mass casualty event. It could be a shooting or multiple shootings. It could be bomb bombings of federal facilities that also would kill civilians. <clears throat> you know, put Oklahoma City and that attack, uh, you know, in multiple cities. That might give you a sense of scale. It, you, you see how impassioned people are <clears throat> on the extreme right over the raid on Mar-a-Lago and I just wonder if we're not on the, you know, the precipice of something more ugly uh, that that could ultimately have some defense ramifications for the United States. It's an indirect issue, but you'd have to think about homeland security, national will and cohesion. You know, what what would that really mean if if we have an event like that that is is much bigger than just these one-off uh, lone wolf sorts of attacks. Um, having covered uh, that bombing uh, firsthand, um, um, you know, definitely uh, not just food for thought, but for introspection. Uh, Byron, thanks very much. Always a pleasure. Look forward to having you back on again next week. In the meantime, hope you have a great week. Thanks very much, Fago, and I look forward uh, to next week.